Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your hosts, Austin Ye and... Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Before we even get started, I want to apologize to all the listeners for missing another episode, uh, <laughs> especially Sebastian. I don't know if Sebastian DM'd you, <laughs> Mayu, but he was really looking forward to this episode with Mike that we're <laughs> supposed to release that we started advertising last week. And he was refreshing and refreshing. And then he no me oh, and he said, Austin, where's fuck. the podcast? I was like, oh, yeah, we <laughs> we screwed up there. <laughs> and then he messaged me the next day. He's like, hey, is it still coming out this week? I'm like, no, nah, man, you got to wait next week. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Oh, Damn so okay, I feel bad for that. We got to owe our listener something special. You know? Should we do a one hour preamble just to drag it on for a little bit? Or? <laughs> just to drag it on? Yeah. To yeah make up for it six minutes. Because, uh, um, <laughs> what are you doing, man? What's going on? Winter season, slower, the holidays. Honestly, like today, I was just catching up on some small stuff. Like I was sitting down today thinking like, what do I need to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not that busy at the moment. And then I was like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of these small things that I haven't done yet that I should get on. But yeah. it's like non-urgent things. So it's given me the luxury to do that. One of the things that we're discussing about Mayu is severing one of our properties. It's two lots. One of them is a duplex, which is about 40 frontage. And the other one is just a vacant lot, about 31 or 32 frontage. And now that I have some free time, I've spoken with the land surveyor, the city. I've reached out to a lawyer. We're going to see what we can do on that and to see if we can sell it off. Because I don't think we're going to be developing anytime soon. And it's just nicer to have some liquidity there. Other than that, some tenant things. If you guys have been following my stories, there's been a lot of drama going on. With one of my buildings that I purchased with a partner, gotten several calls at 1 a.m. about this tenant who let her friend live with her for free because her friend got evicted by the sheriff. And she's like, you can stay at my place, which you're not allowed to do that, right? That's like trespassing. We made fucking jokes though, eh? If the actually give everyone the backstory, keep going, keep going. Yeah. And then after that, what ended up happening is is that her friend changed the locks on her and her kids. <laughs> It's crazy. Like, I feel so bad. But her and her kids had to stay at a shelter that day. And then they decided to move in with another friend that they have that housed them for just that night. I woke up in the morning. My phone was on mute, so I didn't get any notifications. So 6.30 a.m. I called her, like, as soon as I woke up. And then she messaged me back at 6.45 a.m. And then we chatted shortly after. Got the cops in there. And uh, yeah, the cops eventually kicked them out. And then I just got a notification today from another tenant in that building. So there's two tenants still there. They're both leaving at the end of the month. The other tenant said, hey, there's someone living in the basement. Like, I just want to let you know if someone's <laughs> monitoring it. I was like, oh, maybe it's that same family that's gone back there and staying in the basement now. That's so I messaged Graham, our property manager. I was like, hey, can we change the basement door? Because there's like the basement door was already breaking apart. So I was like, let's just fully change it, make sure all the garbage there's clean, ensure that everything's fortified so no one gets, gets back in, in the building. That's that's fucking hilarious. I know you feel bad. I know you feel bad. I, I, I was dying. OK, I feel like most people are going to be dying listening to this because, yo, 
why do you let someone in that didn't pay rent? A, and then it's fucking that's a very entertaining form of karma for 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 them to then change the lock. Whatever, maybe I'm an asshole for this, but I found it fucking. Yeah, but like, yeah. Here's the thing: is is that although it's like I feel bad, I'm honestly not ultra surprised. The tenant quality in that building is definitely on the sketchier side. For example, like when I Mm. walked in her unit for the first time, it was pig style, right? Like it looked like Mm. dishes haven't been done in like two weeks. Dishes everywhere, like a Popeye's bucket just like laying around. Mm. That looks like it was there like five days ago. Pizza, pizza, boxes. They didn't take care of it. So I'm not surprised that like her friend is probably lives in a similar sort of style, right? And then they probably don't have the best. I don't want to judge, but like, I'm, I'm not surprised about their character, right? Just even per my interactions with them. Yeah. yeah, That's, that's fucking hilarious. I was going to ask you what you're up to Mayu, but I know we're a little bit short on time and there's been a lot of anticipation on this episode for Michael Lee. So we're just going to jump straight into it. If you guys remember Michael Lee or Mike Lee was in a previous episode with us earlier on the series where we talked all about wholesaling. Now we get a little bit into wholesaling today. But we talk into some other interesting things that Mike is up to. So Mike has done over 100 deals of wholesaling and flipping, but now he really wanted to focus in on acquisitions, building an Airbnb business, and also buying and joint venturing properties. He found that even though flipping is a great income source, it's not the best wealth builder. Surprise, surprise. But Mike is is starting off with a bang in his acquisitions. We get into many other interesting topics. This is an episode you don't want to miss out. Whenever we speak with Mike, there's always some awesome shit going on. And just before we jump into the podcast, heads up, guys, during the holiday season, Mayu and I are going to take it off, which is really only next week. But we'll (laughs) be back on in the new year. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode in the meantime. Hello, everyone. We have a very special guest and a good friend joining us once again, Mr. Michael Lee. Mike, how is everything going, man? Things are going great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. A second time. Second time. So for anyone that doesn't know, I think Mike was one of like our earlier guests, probably within the first like 20 episodes, I feel like that we had Mike, maybe it was like 20 or 30, but he was killing it back then. He's continuing to kill it now. Very prominent investor in the community. And so for Mike, anyone that doesn't know you, I guess, quick introduction, what you've been up to in the last year and a half, how your business has changed. Let's hear it all, man. Okay, so quick introduction about myself. My background is in sales and marketing. About four and a half years ago, I got into real estate investing. I was introduced to the concept of wholesaling real estate. And I saw it as a way for me to use my sales and marketing skills and transition into a field that had always been really exciting for me, but it always seemed like it was so unattainable, you know, and I didn't have a lot of excess capital at the time. So I really believed at the time it was unattainable. But then I saw wholesaling. You can get in, into business with little to no money down and use your sales and marketing skills. I got so excited. I just jumped right in. And how much deals did you end up doing uh, wholesaling year to date now? Year to year date? To date? Um, year to date, so yeah. Year to date. I just, I just actually checked this a couple days ago. And I think we're at like 70 deals. Um, that's not wow. our net deals, but that's how much deals we've at least yeah. got under contract. and. And put out to the market. So that's amazing. And you've done over, uh, what was it? Was it 200 deals or 100 deals you've done since beginning wholesaling, right? We completed over 200 transactions already. Yeah. That's amazing. And this is not going to be a, an entire wholesaling podcast because that was our previous episode. We dug into those. We're going to talk about what has shifted and what has changed, but we know that you're doing 
much more than wholesaling now. That's only one of the elements of kind of the different sort of investment vehicles you're exploring. Why don't we start off with that? From the last time we were chatting, wholesaling obviously was going well. Market conditions have changed, right? Myself being a wholesaler as well, and just like networking with other wholesalers, obviously it's had an impact in all of our businesses. So what is different now? How are you guys pivoting? Are you guys doing anything different in the current market condition? Good questions. As far as wholesaling is concerned, we haven't changed a lot, but the mindset behind what we're doing has shifted. So last year, we were in what I would categorize as an extreme seller's market. So it was very, very difficult to find a really motivated seller and get a great deal under contract at a great discount. But if we get a deal under contract, there's a huge lineup of buyers ready to pull the trigger on it, funding or wholesaling included, right? That has kind of shifted now. So now we have an abundance of motivated sellers that are willing to sell at a discount. And we have less buyers that are willing or able to capitalize on the current market conditions. Mm. So as a company, we're really putting a lot more focus on the disposition side of our wholesaling. It's crazy how the things change, right? Because before it was a lot more emphasis on acquisitions because dispo was a second thought. You could almost move any sort of deal in that market. But now the acquisitions are obviously still very important because you need to get a good deal to move. But now the emphasis and weight on disposition has 10 times like the importance of it cannot be understated. Back when we did our last episode, I feel like you had a pretty lean team. You've obviously done a lot of wholesaling since then. And I feel like you guys have significantly like increased your output and so on over the last year and a half or so, right? And then we're about to jump into all the other stuff that you're doing as well, right? So I'm just curious how your team has grown, how you've kind of grown that business organically or not, and how you run that business as a whole now versus then. In terms of the team that I have in my company right now, we have seven or eight people currently. We have a full-time acquisition person. We have a disposition person. We have a project manager, an operations person. We have someone that helps with our short-term rentals, kind of like a property... I guess you could call them an internal property manager Mm. slash guest communications. And we have a full-time marketer. We also have contractors that are technically outsourced, but they work with us very, very closely at this stage in the game. So the business is definitely scaled up, it seems. I'm curious, in your opinion, is the wholesaling business or is there something else that has changed for you like over the last year? What do you think has really changed in how you do your business? And I guess yourself as an investor as well. I've kind of shifted a lot of my mindset from the last time we talked to now, which I think the last time we chatted on the podcast was probably about a year and a half ago. So there are different categories of investments. And I actually believe that you can actually invest in people as well. And we had a phase in our company where we actually grew so fast that I actually hired on a bunch of additional people. And it wasn't that some of these people aren't talented. They do have some talent in their own right, but they also have to be a great cultural fit. And as far as my company is concerned, I only want to find superstars that are actually better than me. And so I've become very focused on finding the right people. We can still be a lean company with not too many people inside of our company, But if I do bring someone on, I want them to be an absolute superstar. Yeah. And to that point, I think that's super important in any sort of small company like ours, because in corporate, when someone joins corporate, they want a lot of handholding along the way in the beginning. But for a small company like ours, our time is so stretched. 
we don't have time to handhold someone to, you know, help them throughout every step. So having superstars is super key because you want someone who's independent and focused on results. And uh, we've learned that as well in our company too. It's just so key in these small sort of businesses. Speaking on some of the uh, hires you have on board. So the dispo was straightforward. They're handling the phone calls and the investor side. Acquisitions, straightforward, handling the purchases of the property. Now, what's your marketer doing? Are they handling the marketing? Is that like a totally separate role than the acquisitions person? And if you don't want to get into it, if it's a trade secret, just that's totally fine as well. (laughs) They basically are in charge of guerrilla marketing in our company, right? So anything that would have to do with offline marketing is what they take care of. As far as online marketing, so right now, my company, I actually have another company taking care of our web presence at this point. But the first three years or so that I was in business, I actually did the website stuff myself. I did the Google ads. I did the Facebook ads. It's because several years ago, I was in the solar industry. I was running the small business, a small businesses marketing department. And I learned a little bit about advertising back then. So. I do know how to do websites, Google ads, SEO, Facebook ads. And I leveraged that for several years. But at a certain point, it's time for me to be the CEO of the company and step out of that that hat. Mm -hmm. Nice. So I know Austin would love to keep asking questions about the wholesaling, but I'm more curious. So I know wholesaling was and still is a pretty significant part of your business, I'm sure. Right. But I know you're up to a lot of other stuff. Right. So what have you kind of branched off into the last year, year and a half? Or how has your business changed, I guess, is the other side of that question. As a company, we've kind of shifted focuses as we went. And the market actually influences this quite a bit as well. But when we were in that seller's market last year, of 50% of the properties that I was dispoing, I was flipping 50% of them and wholesaling 50% of them. Wow. I didn't know it was that high that you were flipping. I thought you were wholesaling majority. That's crazy. (laughs) No. So we, yeah, we were... So my total mix as far as the company was 45% wholesale, 45% flip, and 10% buy and hold. And the buy and holds, we would turn them into short-term rentals. So I started doing that about a year ago, just over a year ago now. We're up to seven doors, but we also have two more under reno that would be uh, short-term rentals once they're completed. So roughly, we're going to be about seven to 10 doors before the end of this year. Gotcha. Is there any particular markets that you're diving down into short-term rentals or what was the appeal of it? Because I know that you were very heavily flip and wholesaling focused, and then now you're really buy and hold sort of focused, right? So what was the appeal of it and what makes a good short-term rental for you? In terms of appeal, let's talk about that for a second. Wholesaling and flipping, it's very, very active. And flipping especially, it's a high-stress, high-stakes game. I would consider that as a young man's game. I don't picture myself flipping houses when I'm like 55, 60 or 70 years old. But I do want to set myself up so that I can be wealthy and be free. And in my mind, as I was wholesaling and flipping all these houses, I would wholesale houses and I would see the people that bought them, convert them into multifamily units sometimes, duplex, triplex conversions. And you know, like I take pride in wholesaling quality deals to people. But at a certain point, I stop and I look at it and I say, okay, you have this deal in your hand and you let it go. And this is an amazing source of appreciation and passive cash flow. So, in order to achieve my long term goals, I see short term rental as a way to do that. And it can be achieved much, much faster than buying single family long term rentals. 
So the short-term rentals that you're doing, just you know, curious because you said this, are you doing them on multifamily properties or are you doing them on single family? And like, what, what type of properties do you prefer to short-term rental then? And I know we had a separate conversation actually on this as well. How have you structured your short-term rentals? Because in like the wholesaling and the flipping game and like where you source deals, it's a little bit like broad, right? Like it could be like realistically like anywhere in Ontario, right? So how have you kind of structured your short-term rental business then? Okay, Mayu, we did talk about this um, (laughs) off the podcast and I put a lot of thought into our conversation because when you asked me these questions, I realized that the things I was saying, I was kind of all over the board, but... um, I actually thought it was pretty good, which is why I'm asking. I thought it was pretty good. I was like, you know what? There's there's two different... So obviously me and Mike had a conversation just like offline. Like I think it was like one or two weeks ago. I don't remember now. And basically what I had asked you at that time was, you know, I've structured my investments. Like, okay, we have Windsor. We have like Northern Ontario, we have like New Brunswick, right? And I've kind of structured, and we were realistically like, we were talking about the US and how the US is super fragmented. And if you want to buy apartment buildings, you can't really be that picky on where you buy it, right? And then you kind of went into your short-term rental. So there's a context for everyone, but you know, yeah, just for everyone's knowledge, like how have you structured that business now? And yeah. Let me first talk about the deals themselves and then I'll touch on the location and how things actually influence location that I invest in. So the deals themselves, what I've found, and I have, a, I have a couple arbitrage, Airbnb arbitrage deals going on. And I also have some of my own personally owned short-term rentals. The ones that are performing the best are the ones that are personally owned. And one of them is a duplex. So it was a single family house converted to a duplex. Turns out it was actually on a double lot. So I'm going to end up severing that lot as well and making another duplex, probably rent, you know, short-term rental that, that new duplex. And then the other one that's performing very well is a waterfront cottage in Napanee. Here's what I found is the main difference. Number one, they have more... These properties are in touristy areas or they have more amenities and they also have more beds. So in terms of short-term rentals, what I've noticed is more beds equals more income. So the deals themselves, I'm looking for properties that can ideally do over $500 a night now, rather than looking for properties that do $100 a night or, you know, just easy properties I could short-term rental. I don't want to go after, you know, necessarily low-hanging fruits. I want to go after high income generating properties right away. They may not be as easy to find, but I find in my own portfolio, these properties generate five times as much income. So it's a no-brainer for me. In terms of the locations though, here I find if you get fixated on one location, it can be a good thing to focus down on one investing location. However, you're going to be passing up a lot of deals that make a lot of sense. So an example of that, we talked about investing in the States. Now, I haven't started investing in the States yet, but I was looking down in Florida. And through my networking in Florida, I met some investors that were they were wholesalers themselves, and they happened to come across as a 18-unit portfolio in Dayton, Ohio. I wasn't looking in Ohio, but the deal's on my desk. Am I going to take a look at it, or am I just going to brush it off? See, the thing about location is like, location's important, but discount's important too. So if I see an amazing deal, and it's not in my ideal market, like Austin, I joke with you about Sudbury a lot, but I have an STR that I'm about to start in Sudbury right now. <laughs> Right. Like I'm not I'm not in love with Sudbury, but if there's a good deal there, I'm gonna do it. 
Yeah. And I think that makes sense, especially from the background of wholesale. And we market all over the place. So we got first access to deals everywhere. If we're just focused on one city, exactly what you're saying, you're going to be passing out a lot of deals, the sideline. And I'm kind of the same way. Like I'm a bit all over the place, which some people might think it's unfocused. Sometimes I think to myself, am I being unfocused? But then, yeah, ultimately it's the discount and how good the deal is. So for the short-term rental portfolio, when you say $500 a night, does that kind of push you more towards the cottage side of things and like touristy side of things? Because it's not often you find 500 in like a Hamilton or a Kitchener or Cambridge. So if it was in a smaller or if it was in a city, for example, I'd probably look at duplex or triplex type of properties. So the total amount of income that whole property can generate is, let's say, $500 a night. Now, maybe that's in three units. So you have maybe three units that are doing $165 each a night. That's fine with me. Okay. That makes sense. And I'll just add one thing on. I do think that that's kind of interesting and it makes a lot of sense because even when you have like a five bedroom cottage, but it's divided by like 10 people, right? Like if you can sleep like 10 individuals or, or five couples or whatever it is, like three families, right? That per night cost is now divided up by a lot of individuals, making it a lot more affordable. And I've always thought the same thing. Like even when you look at Kitchener, if it's like a one bedroom Airbnb up for like $150, $200, you could find some pretty low cost, like hotel options if you wanted to, right? Versus when you have that three bedroom that's up for like $300, like that's three different families that can kind of stay in one house, right? So yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. But on the short-term rental side, when you're scaling up your business like that across quite a few different markets, I kind of already know the answer, but I want to share it with our audience. What are some of the pain points that gets involved in that? How have you overcome that? What do you find works really well for that model? I haven't had pain points in different markets per se, but I built my wholesaling business first and I built that virtually. Okay. It wasn't by design at the, the very beginning, but I accidentally did a, my very first wholesale deal was virtual. So I just ended up gravitating towards building virtual models that could work without me having to be physically present. And then when I started building my short term rental business, it was virtual from day one. Most of my short-term rentals, I've never even been to them ever. So in terms of how to get that to work though, there's three main levers in a short-term rental business that you need to control in order to make that work. You need to control the guest communications. You need to control the cleaners. And you also need to control the property maintenance. So if you have boots on the ground, cleaners, boots on the ground, maintenance people, and you can somehow communicate with the guests in a hands-off fashion, which is through the platforms like Airbnb, it's very, very possible. It's like all text messaging. So you don't physically have to be there. But as long as you can control those three levers, you can do it virtually, no problem. Let's talk a little bit about, again, there's the other cool things you're working on on the side. So we want to get into that as well. But let's talk a little bit about those three levers that you were mentioning earlier. So finding the right maintenance person and cleaners, what type of due diligence do you do for that? Like, How do you find those right people? And secondly, how do you go about actually setting up the furniture? Is this the contractor's job? Or are you finding like people on Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace to help set it up for you? Keep in mind, I've only been doing this for about a year now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't have all the answers, but I can tell you some of the things that I have done and what I've learned from up until now to make things go faster. So let's start with the furniture. At the beginning, I actually had a designer handpick all the furniture in my uh, first few Airbnbs. And 
that was a very lengthy process because she wanted a specific look to these properties. Like she designed them with a theme. So we had the the duplex I have. It's in Port Colburn. She's like, well, this is a port a port town. Let's do a nautical theme. And she really pulled it off well. And in terms of the furnishings, like I think it looks great. And on top of that, it generates more income than I initially projected. Fantastic. But it took her a few months to furnish the place. And to me, that was unacceptable. So it's not that she didn't do a good job, but she did. It just took a bit too long. So what we're doing now is we will get someone to generate a layout plan. Typically, it could be that same designer. But I've also found that you can get people on like Fiverr and Upwork to do this as well. So you can get a layout plan that takes one day. And then with the layout plan, a designer can determine what furnishing should go in the place. And then they can send a furnishing plan back to our team. And then inside of my team, I have my operations person just order all the furniture online using websites like Amazon, Wayfair, Structube. And if that doesn't work, because one time it didn't work, we just order from local stores. So hold on. So <laughs> let's break that down a little bit. So A, what does the designer normally cost someone if they're looking to get into the space and they're not already in it? Or maybe they haven't used one before, but what does it normally cost someone? And then the second thing is with furniture arriving from multiple different stores or whatever, right? Are you just leaving in front of the house? Like do you have someone there that's constantly bringing that stuff inside and setting it up right away, right? How are you kind of handling that? In terms of what it costs for furniture, um, I can designer, just give designer. you some metrics, real like quick napkin math okay. for that, because a different size houses will have different amount of furnishing costs. But if it was a long-term rental, for example, let's say it's twenty five hundred dollars a month, you could take the first and last month's rent. That that's five thousand dollars. Multiply that by two. That could be your furnishing budget. That's pretty good. How much does the designer cost? So I actually have a designer on retainer in my company. They're full-time. This is my project manager. She's a project manager slash designer. So if you want to have someone full-time, definitely (laughs) it's going to cost you. Some money for sure. Yeah. But it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you have the people on your team manage that. So not only are they doing the wholesaling business, but they're also able to manage your Airbnb portfolio as well. Okay, so moving on from the Airbnb kind of talk, I know that you're working on some other interesting projects as well. Let's talk about kind of uh, your portfolio acquisition. How's that going for you? Are there any, is it like the same sort of criteria as your Airbnb or what exactly are you looking for now when you're looking for a long-term buy and hold? In terms of portfolio acquisition, Mayu, when we spoke about this the week or the week before off the air, we did touch on this a little bit. So... As far as long-term rentals, I do not believe in Ontario. The numbers, to me, they don't make sense. So what I mean by that is the purchase prices are quite high and it's a very tenant-friendly market, even to the point where a lot of the deals that we pick up from motivated sellers are people that are trying to offload tenanted properties because the tenants are a problem and there's very little recourse available. So... For that reason, if I was going to buy long-term rentals, I'm going to do it in a very tenant-friendly market. I've looked in other provinces, such as New Brunswick, for example, and there is some merit to picking up properties in other provinces. But then I started believing that if I'm going to go that far away from home, I might as well look at buying property in the States. So for long-term rentals, that's definitely going to be happening in the States. It hasn't started yet. As far as short-term rentals, 
yes, I'm definitely willing to do that in Ontario as long as the numbers make sense. I'm looking for waterfront properties. I'm looking for small multi-units in short-term rental-friendly municipalities. Sudbury is one of them, by the way, Austin. So that's what I'm looking for right now in terms of building my portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, so just out of curiosity, by numbers not making sense, do you mean like you think that the market is going to turn for the worse from a property value perspective? Or do you mean that the cash flow just doesn't make too much sense after refi? What are you seeing in Ontario outside of like the tenant laws? That's obviously very unattractive. But from the numbers perspective, what doesn't work for you that drove you away? You mean you're not attracted to the tenant laws here? <laughs> oh, that's the best thing about investing here, man. <laughs> I love to give all my rights <laughs> up. <laughs> so the numbers, as far as the properties are concerned here, I don't want to buy a property so I could potentially cash flow $200 a month. That's not going to move the needle. Like I could go out for dinner and spend that money, right? I can mm-hmm. barely even pay gas with that much money. So how many deals do you need to buy and get $200 cash flow a month to really make yourself financially free? You need dozens and dozens of deals, right? And depends on your financial goals, what being financially free means to you. But in my mind, I need dozens and dozens of deals like that. Why not fast forward that process by picking up, for example, 10 properties that cash flow a few thousand dollars a month each? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ultimately, kind of a cash flow goal. Yeah, Ontario, probably not the best place for cash flow with small multis. Especially because the valuations are ridiculous. When you refi, your cash flow basically goes to exactly what you're saying, a few hundred dollars. Yeah. Most of the people that have true cash flow in Ontario, they've owned their properties for like 10 years, right? That's the reality of it. Like me and Austin talk about as well. We can write our numbers whatever way we want. Furnace goes out, boom, you're out like $3,000 on a random like single family duplex or something like that. And it just erodes like a year's worth of like cash flow, right? But the individuals that bought like five, 10 years ago, which like if you're buying today and if you have like a 10 or 15 year horizon, Rents will go up as a result of inflation. Your mortgage will get paid down and then your cash flow will start to emerge. But it's a very long term, slow game. Right. But so, Michael, like I, I know you're up to a lot of stuff. How have you kind of structured your businesses in a way that allows you to even take on more and more? Because every single time I talk to you, it's, I'm not going to be starting to do this. Right. So you're now starting to do the US. You've got a short term rental business. You've got a crazy amount of flips going on every time I talk to you and you've got a crazy amount of wholesale deals. How have you really like structured your life? Are you just like super disciplined and super focused or like, what's the key here? Cause like I struggle to do more than one thing at a time. <laughs> Number one, I like to think that I'm a high performer. I like to believe that. And I'm confident that I can get things done. But I think one of the keys to what you just said is not how to do something personally, but who can be in place? Who can you work with that can help you achieve these goals? So it's not only who you can work with is both that person has to have some synergy with you and you have to be able to add value to them in some way. So I think who can I add value to and who can add value to me? Right? Because all these goals are not possible without team. That's simple as that. I can't do everything. I can't be everywhere at once, even if I am a high performer. So I just gave up that whole mentality of doing everything and being good at everything. I just forgot about it completely. I would rather find someone that's way better and way smarter than me. So to answer your question, it's really to find people that can help you achieve your goals and add value to them. We usually like to get an idea of individuals. And so I guess what's a common misperception that someone has about you? Because I think you wholesale quite a bit, you flip quite a bit. 
I'm just curious in your thoughts, how you view yourself versus how I guess other people view you. Absolutely. So common misconception people have about me and when they meet me, especially they say, Oh, you're the wholesaler guy. You're four on six home buyer wholesaler guy. And the reality is, yes, we do wholesale, but I identify as an entrepreneur, as an investor and entrepreneur. So I don't want to limit myself to just saying, okay, I can make money by arbitraging deals. That's not the only way to make money. And that's not the only way I'm going to make money. So I like to think of myself as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Too many times people want to pigeonhole others. So I'm still curious about your acquisition. So speaking about Sudbury, because obviously I'm investing in Sudbury as well. And Mayu actually just got something under contract in Sudbury. Are you firm on it now, right, Mayu? Yeah, yeah, we're firm. Okay, so we're all investing in Sudbury here. <laughs> we're going to delay this podcast by like two months just so we have a decent amount of time to buy some more properties in Sudbury. But yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it's still pretty active down there, but Airbnb in Sudbury, did you dig down into the due diligence of it? And like, what are you expecting numbers wise with your current Airbnb that you're setting up there? So this property is fully renovated. In terms of the numbers itself, I think you're going to get, as a majority, you're not going to get super, super high rents. But this property, I actually was about to flip it. And because the market shifted so much, I had a decision to make. Can I, do I want to sell this and break even? Or maybe even take a slight loss? Or do I want to turn it into a rental? And so I ran my numbers. I figured out that my carrying costs were going to be about $2,000 a month, roughly, on this property when I refinanced it. And by the way, the refinancing, was pretty tough. I ended up refining with private money. So I have a private first mortgage now, but the carrying costs are still only about $2,000 because this house, I picked it up for 95 grand and then I renovated it. Did you try wholesaling it first or no? No. Oh, okay. okay. Well, a long time ago when I first got it under contract, yes. Okay. So as a short-term rental, I believe it's going to do about $3,000 to $3,500 a month mm -hmm. just from my initial projections. And so that sounds okay to me. And I'd rather wait out the market and let it get hot again instead of dumping the property and either breaking even or taking a slight loss. Um, yeah. I just think it's a much better exit strategy. And so how much do you spend? Like it sounds like it must be like a pretty small house, single family house from the sounds of it. Like how much do you spend furnishing a house like that? That one, I think it was eight grand, ten grand. Oh wow. Man, I need to get your tips and tricks. I think when we furnished our two bedroom, we spent 12 grand somewhere around there. But I guess that also included the cost of having the person go and, and set everything up as well. So with your Sudbury Airbnb, how did you manage to get the furniture installation and everything in on time? Because one of the struggles we had when we were setting ours up, I guess we found a solution to it. Our cleaner thankfully allowed us to use her garage for storage and eventually move stuff over. But I know that's not a scalable model. Like a cleaner only has one garage and we can't send her like ton and ton of furniture. So how did you work around that sort of problem? This process has developed over time. So like I was previously mentioning before I had a designer handpicking all the furnishing and she would deliver the furniture one by one. And because we're doing virtual STR, she's driving like two hours out every other day to drop off furniture. And she would complain to me and I told her to stop doing that, but she just kept doing it. I was like, Oh no. <laughs> so I started thinking to myself, there has to be a better way. So where we're at now is 
we bulk order everything at once. So we have lists and we bulk order all the furniture and supplies all at once. And we get a boots on the ground, could be a cleaner, could be a property maintenance person. And during this process, we're actually basically interviewing the person who will be the cleaner and property maintenance person. Because if they're not willing to play a ball, then I don't really want to work with them because I want to work with A players, right? So that person might be a cleaner, but can they take a list of supplies and figure out where to put them in a house? Yeah, They might be a property maintenance person, but can they figure out how to put together some chairs in case that ever happens and a chair breaks, right? So we want to see how they react to something like this. But anyways, we will get all the furniture and supplies ordered at once. So they'll be arriving typically over the course of like seven days or so. They don't all arrive at once. And what we do is we just pay that one person, whether it be a cleaner or property maintenance person, to be on site every day, accept the orders and put together the furniture. Gotcha. So you try to maximize the time. So get everything in in a week. So you kind of have them on payroll for a week time, but it saves everyone a lot of time and headache in the grand scheme of things. And probably it's only costing you not more than a thousand to two thousand bucks, right? For all of that. Correct. It doesn't cost too much, guys. And the last time we did this, there was an arbitrage deal. We signed the arbitrage lease on the 23rd of the month. Our lease started on the 1st. And I told my team, let's try actually get this thing furnished by the 1st of the month. One mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And we ran into some snags. The struct tube couldn't deliver on time. So we ended up ordering some of the furniture from a local furniture store. But using this process, we were actually able to get the house fully furnished and on Airbnb by the third of the month. Wow. Damn. 10, 11 days. Yeah. 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 You got to push people out of the comfort zone. I'm finally entering into the space. And my initial plan was just to like, get everything shipped to my house in Pickering. And then I was going to get a moving truck because these guys, there's some movers that can just install like every single piece of furniture in like a couple hours. Like they're stupid fast at it. I was like, all right, just get a truck here, send three guys up north and just get them to set up everything. But it seems like, I think I'm missing an important piece, which is what Michael said, which is like, if you have some maintenance staff, there's a good way to kind of test them out, make sure they know how to set everything up and disassemble and, and replace anything that comes in. Right. So that's a pretty key part of your power team. How are you going about the ongoing kind of management of it? Do you use some like, I know a lot of people in the arbitrage space, they move towards VAs and that kind of structure, or are you kind of using local individuals or some like full-time employees to kind of manage your, your short-term rentals, given you have about seven to 10 of them? Right now in our company, we have three main points of contact for short-term rentals. We have basically someone who, this is my girlfriend, Anna. She's basically like the more or less one of the communications people. She'll communicate with the guests. And then she also works with the cleaners to make sure the cleaners are all lined up on schedule. I have my operations person. So he's not just an operations person in my flipping business. He's an operations person across all my endeavors. So I would say it's the main point of contact. And if there's an emergency, I'm a third point of contact. But my phone number is not even on the Airbnb listings anymore. So like, it's very, very difficult for a guest to speak to me directly. So far... That method has been working for us. And when you have three people that can respond to a guest inquiry, I find that we respond pretty quickly in general. Mm -hmm. In the future, I will definitely move over to VAs though. So we're actually developing, currently developing our systems right now. So that, for example, if there is a guest emergency, like for some reason, they can't open the digital door code for some reason, we have a VA in the Philippines that'll tell them how to get in the house. 
You know, so we're setting up all these systems now so that it can be run by VAs. Yeah. Very cool, man. It's very interesting. It's good that you're leveraging your team to do multiple tasks, right? My quick tip. Yeah. You just mentioned you're setting up an Airbnb. I recommend having a digital door lock, but second to that, have a spare key yeah. in a lockbox on the property. Yeah. It sounds so simple, but it's actually a game changer because for some reason, some people do not know how to use a digital door code. Well, those things also get kind of finicky sometimes. Like I know my parents used to have like a digital door lock before like everyone's really talking about it just because we had people coming in and out to like take care of like elderly grandparents and stuff. And like every now and then it just randomly for whatever reason, like one number would just stop working. And the only solution is you got to replace the entire thing, right? Because like if it's a number that's constantly being used, it'll start to happen, right? So yeah, but no, that makes a lot of sense. I think the entire Airbnb space is one that, you know, you've kind of scaled very organically. And I'm sure you've learned a lot along the way that you're then able to implement across your portfolio, right? I just wanted to jump in and ask you a little bit about the leverage situation. Because I know with flipping, I'm not sure if you're actively flipping anymore, but with flipping and buying some dilapidated properties, obviously you have to take on private debt. Has that situation changed in current market environment? Are you taking these things down with more like equity injection? How has that been kind of playing out? And has that impacted your growth of how quickly you can scale as well? Man, a few questions there. Got to unpack them all at once. All right. So number one, yes, it has impacted my ability to get financing. I've been working with a lot of the same private lenders even since the very beginning when I started flipping up until now. Because even if there's been a few instances, thankfully, I haven't lost money too many times flipping houses. I usually make money. Otherwise, I'd be going broke pretty quickly, right? So thankfully, though, even if I do lose money with my lenders, they've always been whole all the time, right? So with the current market situation, I'm finding that a lot of these lenders are pulling back their LTVs. So they're not willing to lend as much as at a percentage of value of the property. They're not willing to give as high LTV. So for example, last year, I could get, for example, 70% of as complete value on a project. Whereas right now, I might only get maybe 60%, for example. And the upfront loan, I would be able to buy properties with no money down if I wanted to. But now it doesn't matter what price I get it at. Usually, my lenders want to see that I'm putting some skin in the game. Now, thankfully, as a person that's flipped houses, what I've done on my own, on my own flips, is I'm always willing to put some skin in the game. Right? So... With the properties that I am flipping, I am still flipping even in this market, by the way, Austin. And because the market went down, if I had bought these properties with no money out of pocket, zero money down, I would probably be a little bit more concerned. Because I've actually put a greater amount down, I have a greater equity position in the property. So even if the market goes down, I'm not underwater on those properties, thankfully. Right? So if you are flipping, I would say, you definitely have to be willing to put some money into it. All that talk about little to no money down deals, it's great when the market's doing great. But in times like these, you got to be willing to put skin in the game. Yeah, it keeps you prudent as well, right? Because the habit is, is if you don't put money into a, a deal, you can scale unlimited, which is a good and a bad thing because you scale sometimes too much than what you're ready for. And when you start putting a little bit of money in each one, now you're thinking, uh, okay, I have my money at stake. I might end up losing it. So I want to be more careful, conservative, and grow at a profitable pace. Yeah. Oh, by the way, guys, I've scaled up to a point where I have like 22 flips going at once. Mm -hmm. For me, and that might be fun for somebody else, but for me, that is not fun. That is a lot <laughs> of stress. 
That's so, a lot of work and stress. Yeah. A lot of work. Mm-hmm. Lot you of managed stress. 22 flips with eight people? That's crazy, man. That's, a, that's <laughs> and not even all wild, eight of them. It was wild. Just like even looking at my bank account and seeing all the transactions going in and out every day, I was like, holy cow. So you're absolutely right. Little to no money down, you can scale up infinity, but scaling up to infinity is definitely not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is that within my own company, there's definitely a limit to what we can easily control and handle. And I want to yeah. stay in that limit. I want to stay in that productive zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah no, everyone's got to have an idea, I guess, of, of what they're comfortable kind of taking on. Right. And a large part of aggressive growth is also timing. And right now it's probably not the time for aggressive, aggressive growth. Right. But so Michael, when we first talked, you were predominantly doing wholesaling and flipping. You've now added short-term rentals to your portfolio. At this point, we usually ask your guests two questions, right? So the first is, how do you see your business evolving over the next, call it two years or five years, I guess? As an entrepreneur, I want to be a lot more net worth focused than I have been in the past. So in the past, I realized as I wrote down my goals and I kind of reviewed them, I realized that pretty much all my goals were income based. Are you a big spender? You don't seem like a big spender. I'm not a crazy big spender. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I do spend money on food. So I like to go to a good steak restaurant and I don't mind spending money on that, but I don't go crazy with anything else. But I do realize that you can keep trying to scale up your income, but income somehow, once it goes into your account, you always find a way to spend it and it's gone. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, why not build my net worth, build assets that are going to last longer than me? So that's something I've become a lot more focused on. In the next three to five years, I can see myself owning a lot more buy and hold real estate. Definitely see myself investing in the States to accomplish some of those goals. And I can also see myself doing some small business acquisitions, specifically in the home services industry. Home services industry, like property management, short-term rentals, or you mean like furnaces and like HVAC? Or like, I'm just curious what, <laughs> what are you talking about here? <laughs> So some thoughts that initially come to my mind are, I don't want them to be a seasonal business. I want it to be definitely someone could use if they're flipping a house so that my house flipping business would be symbiotic to it. Some of the ideas I've come up with are countertops, mm. like quartz count- stone counters, right? HVAC companies, insulation. I'd prefer if it wasn't seasonal, but you know, it could be exterior, like siding and roof. Oh, so yeah. those are some of the companies that I'm starting to look into. Yeah, you're following like a vertical integration model, right? Where you're just adding in different companies that you've probably been using quite a bit within your flipping business and, and other related businesses that you could offer to other investors. So that's pretty cool. A second question for you for usually we say newer investors, but also for like medium term investors, what's the biggest mistake, biggest risk, et cetera, that you're seeing in the current market that people are making? You know, like we just mentioned with the flipping, you can scale to, there are ways to scale to infinity, but if you're going to scale up, you definitely, the more you scale, the more careful you have to be. And especially if you're using other people's money. So the last thing I want to do is lose another investor's money. That's someone that believes in me. And the risk of that happening increases exponentially as, as you scale up with little to no, none of your own money. Thankfully, I've been able to put my own skin in the game in a lot of my own deals. And I believe if you're going to scale up, at least get your income to a level where you can put your own skin in the game. Yeah, I think that's uh, super wise advice, especially for newer investors. I find they try to get very ahead of themselves. But again, like it's about being in the game long enough to reap the rewards, right? You don't need to have a huge portfolio, right? When you start off, you work towards that. If you are like limited by your income, right? Just slow, progressive, profitable growth 
Oh, one thing that we didn't even touch on, but we'll touch on it now is now you're on socials and you're very active on social media prior to before. Like, I don't even think probably had one or two posts on your Instagram maximum. So why are you on social media now? I guess this is the last question here. What's gotten you to start doing social media? And also, where can people find you on social media? I had heard so many times that being branding yourself and being active on social media is very, very important to growing your business. And in the past, I kind of even prided myself on being a guy behind the scenes. But I started realizing when I meet other investors that they would shake hands with me and they'd ask me what I do. And I'd say, Hey, you know, like I have this, we buy houses for cash company. It's called four and six home buyer. And they, people would recognize the company name, but they wouldn't recognize me. They would actually think that I'm like a low level employee in the company. And I'd say, well, no, I actually own this company. And the, the funny thing was a lot of these people actually That's recognize crazy. my company, but they didn't recognize me at all. So <laughs> I realized that I was actually holding, I was bottlenecking my own growth. And then what kind of catalyzed that, one of the mastermind events that I attended, I ended up coming across a branding and social media expert. Actually, this person used to... He, he currently does and has worked with some very, very high-level business people, investors, even some billionaire real estate people that might be very active on, on social media as well. And it all just clicked. And so I realized it was super important. I just got to going to work on social media. and. Right now, I have people reaching out to me almost every single day. It is actually attracting business opportunities to me, which I'm very, very thankful for. So finally, I realized that it's, it's very important. And that's what's got me on social. For the people that do want to connect with me on social, you can find me on Facebook, Michael Lee, or on Instagram, at official Michael Lee. The official. I love it. <laughs> Makes it super legit. <laughs> And the content you're putting out, you carved a pretty unique space out there amongst all of the investors using social media. You're putting out pretty practical steps on finding off-market deals, which I don't really see many investors do. And obviously, you're an expert in that space. So don't think uh, Mike is just another social media real estate guru. He actually has some really good content out there that I haven't seen in, in Canadian real estate yet. So make sure to give him a follow. All of that will be down in the show notes below. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support it, share with a friend. It helps bring great guests like Michael out to the podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.